Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. Glad you are here. We are thinking through God's Word together, and I want to help you understand God's Word so that you can teach others these things. And I know you can because you guys are a smart group. I read your comments. I get interactions with you on uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, and on YouTube here, Facebook. You guys are a smart bunch. Keep learning. Keep learning so that you can teach others. We need to see these things. So good morning, Caitlin. Hey, child of Elohim. Kieran, appreciate your words there. Uh, good morning, Lewis. Good morning, Megan. Martha D., hello. Hey, Edgar. Good morning, Ken. So if you saw my thumbnail, you might have uh, some questions. <laughs> depending on your, uh, even your, uh, given, given your background, depending on if you're coming from Reformed theology in particular, covenant theology, modern day guys like Sproul, for instance, older guys, Calvin, Luther. It seems like Romans 1 through 4 is held up as uh, the the great exposition of sola fide, right? One of the five solas of the Reformation, faith alone. Uh, Romans 1 through 4, maybe combined with the uh, letter Paul wrote to the Galatians, would be held up as the, uh, the heart of the gospel, sola fide. Well, I'm not dismissing the importance of faith alone. However, as I've been telling you from the beginning, Paul did not sit down to write a systematic theology expounding the doctrine of justification. The traditional outline of Romans, justification is the first four or five chapters, and then you've got sanctification, like Romans 6 through 8, and then predestination, 9 through 11, and then practical application. That is that is not how to study the book of Romans. That's not what Paul set out to do. Remember, we've spent a lot of time re-emphasizing the historic context, the, the, uh, the reason why Paul wrote this letter. It was not simply to give a doctrinal treatise. It's because of the Jewish influence into the church, the Roman church that was made up of people who converted from paganism and the Jews came in and tried to get them circumcised, tell them they got to keep the law of Moses and so on. Let me take you back to chapter 1, verse 16. What many would describe as the key verses, the, the theme verses of this letter. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to... Everyone who believes. That is an intentional statement by the apostle. Everyone to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If you've been with us, that phrase ought to jump out at you now as seeing, oh, I see where he's going with this. He is, he has to 
explain to the Greeks, but especially to the Jews, that yes, the gospel is for them first. It was first delivered to the Jews in Jerusalem. Jesus went to the Jews. In fact, he said, don't go to the Gentiles yet. To the Jew first, but it's also for the Greek. And then he spends chapters two and three showing all are sinners, especially the Jews are sinners. I say especially not because they were worse, but because they didn't think they needed salvation. And then remember what we saw in chapter three at the end. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith, or it could be faithfulness, and still referring to Jesus as faithfulness. But anyway, apart from works of the law, this is why, Edgar, uh, I emphasize works in contrast to faith here is works of the law because he's speaking to a audience that has been infiltrated by Jews. And notice verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed the God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised, that would be the Gentiles, through faith is one. God is one, Shema. And both the circumcised and the uncircumcised, the Jews and the Gentiles, are people whom God will declare righteous. This word Gentiles is the word ethnos. Ethnic comes from this word. This could be translated nations. Is God the God of the Jews only or is he the God of the nations also? Yes, of nations also. So my point is that I think Paul's point is not an abstract teaching, not, a, not a, a theoretical, theological teaching of sola fide, but his purpose in writing all of these things is to convince both the Roman Christians and the Jews, God is the God of nations, and the gospel is for the nations, not just Israel. Israel has no specific claim on God and his good news. The Jews have no, uh, the law does not make them less in need of justification than the Gentiles. And that fits with everything we've seen in chapter four. So I'm going to walk through where we've been and then get to our text today. And I'm going to use the literal standard version. This is what uh, Brother Lewis sent to me, I don't know, a month ago. And I have found it to be pretty helpful from this standpoint. For those of you who don't read Greek, uh, this woodenly literal, almost unreadable in places kind of translation can help you see some things and maybe force you to slow down because we are just so familiar with the, the versions, the translations that we use all the time. So we'll see it. I uh, just decided to do this right before we I clicked go live, so we'll see if I regret that and if we want to do it in the, in the future, but that's what I want to do. All right, so God is the God of the nations, not just the Jews. Justifications for the nations, 
not just for the Jews. And justification does not come from keeping the law of Moses that will condemn them. Uh, it only comes through the faithfulness of Jesus, going to the cross, and faith in that. So what about Abraham? That's how he starts chapter 4. What then will we say, Abraham, our father, to have found according to flesh? According to circumcision? For if Abraham was declared righteous by works, he has to boast, but not before God. He doesn't have a boast before God because he wasn't declared righteous by works. For what does the writing say? Quote, and Abraham believed God. Not worked, but he believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And to him who is working, the reward is not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Remember, we talked about that. You, you don't call it grace when someone pays you for your work. That's the obligation. That's the debt. And to him who is not working, or could be but to him who is not working, but is believing on him who is declaring righteous the impious, his faith is reckoned for righteousness. So if you're not trying to work for justification by keeping the law, but instead you're believing on the one who will justify you, then that faith is reckoned as righteousness. Even as David also speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works, quote, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven, whose sins were covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord may not reckon sin. Is this blessedness, this blessedness of forgiveness of sin, of, of righteousness, is it on the uncircumcision or also the, I'm sorry, yeah. Is it on the circumcision or also on the uncircumcision? Is this blessing of righteousness for the Jews only? Or is it also for the nations who are not circumcised? For we say that faith is reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it reckoned? Him being in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Right? Remember the question that he's setting up? Was Abraham declared righteous while he's circumcised or while uncircumcised? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received a sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith in the uncircumcision. So he believed before he was circumcised. God gave him the sign and the faith that he had before he was circumcised that brought righteousness that faith was sealed in Abraham, it doesn't say for anybody else, by this act of circumcision. For by his being father of all those believing, I sorry, in, in, in her, uh, I inputted a preposition there. For his being father of all those being, sorry, my, my, see my mind is going to different translation, and I'm reading the Greek, I just need to stick to it. For his being father of all those believing through uncircumcision, the nations, for the righteousness also being reckoned to them, and father of circumcision to those not of circumcision only, but also who walk in the steps of faith, that is, in the uncircumcision of our father Abraham. I know we've been all through all this, but the point is, God did it this way so that Gentiles who don't have circumcision might have hope of righteousness through faith and that the, those who are circumcised who also walk in the steps of faith would have this righteousness. So he's differentiating those who keep, 
who try to keep the law and depend on the law from those who are circumcised but don't trust in the circumcision, but they have faith. All right. For not the law is the promise to Abraham. All right. So here's where we're going to drill down. This is what we talked about yesterday, and I realize our time. I know that's a lot of review, but we've got to always keep the context. For not through law is the promise to Abraham or to his seed. What promise? Of his being heir of the world. God's promise to Abraham that he would be heir of the world is not through law. God didn't set up a law for Abraham and then say, if you keep the law, you'll be heir of the world. And this promise also was to his seed, by the way. But it was through the righteousness of faith. For if they who are of law are heirs, faith is made void and promise has been made useless. We talked about this yesterday. It's no longer about faith if it's about law. It's no longer about God's promise In fact, that promise is made useless if now God interjects a law. For the law works wrath. For where where the law is not, neither is there transgression. No law was given to Abraham, therefore he didn't transgress it, therefore he could receive the inheritance. All right, moving on then. Because of this, it is of faith that it may be according to grace. Going back to what he said earlier, right? If it's uh, based on works, it's not based on grace. Rather, it's what is do. But it's if it's based on faith, then it can be according to grace. You didn't work, you didn't you didn't obey some law somewhere to receive it. You believed, you trusted, and that's God's grace when he gives you the promise. For the promise being sure to all the seed, not to that which is of the law only, but also to that which is of the faith of Abraham. So the promise by grace to all the seed, is not simply to those who are under the law, the Jews, but also to that which is of the faith of Abraham. So for those under the law, if they don't believe, then they are not going to receive the promise. It's the faith that brings the promise. So again, you imagine the Jews being part of this whole discussion and Paul saying it's, the promise is not according to the law, so don't trust in the law. Don't trust in your keeping the law. Rather, be like Abraham and trust God. Believe him. And notice what he says here. Who is Abraham? Who is the father of us all? The gospel is for all who believe. Now he quotes from Genesis, according as it has been written, a father of many nations I have set you, not just the Jews, not just the nation of Israel. This was hundreds of years before the establishment of the nation of Israel. And God said, you are going to be a father of many nations. This should not have been a surprise to the Jews. He's the father of us all, Abraham is. Before him who he believed, the one God, the one who said the father of many nations, that's the one whom, God, uh, whom Abraham believed. Notice how he describes God here, God who is quickening the dead and is calling the things that are not as being. Very interesting. God quickens the dead. He, he gives life to the dead and things that 
don't exist, he calls them as though they exist. What are the things that don't exist? Well, when God makes this promise to Abram, the nations don't exist. The nations that come from Abraham's loins don't exist. They are not. And yet God speaks to them as though they are. You see the tense here? A father of many nations, I have set you. When God said that to Abraham, how many nations had come from Abram's loins? Zero. He didn't have any sons. So Paul is saying, Abram believed God when he made this promise. And what did not exist were nations coming from Abram. And God speaks of them as though they do exist. And Abraham believed him. It says God is the one who quickens the dead. What's the dead? Now, some of you, some of you, hold on, I'm going to stop you right here. Stop. When you think of God quickening the dead, your theological upbringing cannot help but intrude on your thinking and you say, obviously, this is regeneration. Stick to the text. Edgar, stick to the text. <laughs> I'm only calling him out because he keeps telling me how he's reminded that again and again whenever we go through things. This is Abram, speaking of Abraham, who against hope believed in hope for his becoming father of many nations according to that was spoken so will your seed be yeah ken's ken's on it so abram has this hope this expectation of being the father of many nations against hope because his body is dead in terms of making babies God says, so will your seed be. Remember, go out and count the stars if you can. That's what your descendants are going to be like. And Abraham has zero children. His body has produced no children. His body is dead and Sarah's body is dead in terms of making babies. They have zero. Zilch. Nada. So he's got this hope against hope. He believed in hope and yet everything he could see says there's no hope because I can't make babies. And having not been weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already become dead, being about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. See the point? God who is quickening the dead. If you just rip that statement out and interpret it from your theological presuppositions, you think Paul is arguing for regeneration here. He's not. He's saying Abraham's body was dead. That's what he says. He did not consider his own body already become dead. His body's dead. But in spite of his, already, his body already being dead, he did not waver in weakness of faith. And he looked at Sarah, his wife, and said, she's old. She's 90 years old. She can't have babies. 
And he didn't consider that and said, I trust the Lord. I believe the Lord. And instead of staggering in unbelief, he said, all right, God can raise the dead loins and womb. And at the promise of God, he did not stagger in unbelief, but had been but was strengthened in faith, having given glory to God and having been fully persuaded that what he has promised, he is also able to do. For this reason also, it was reckoned to him for righteousness. See the point? Let me catch up on a couple of your comments and I want to make one more point that I think you're going to find interesting. Uh, Caitlin says, we are all the seed of Abraham who accept Jesus as our Savior and Redeemer. Yes, who, who believe. He's going to get onto that in the next few verses. Child of Elohim says, oh, wow, I never saw it that way before. Excellent. Uh, Kyrian goes to 11, Hebrews 11, 1. Ken says, I meant root out of dry ground. Oh, like uh, the prophets. Okay. So let me back up. Ask you this question. Caitlin, I'm glad you're here. Glad you're here based on our uh, brief interaction yesterday. So verse 13, for not through law is the promised Abraham or to his seed of his being what? Heir of the world. So the promise Paul's talking about here is that Abraham and his seed would be heir of the world. You see that? I'm not making this up. If they who are of the law are heirs, heirs of what? Heirs of the world. Faith has been made void and the promise has been made useless. For the law works wrath. Where law is not, neither is there transgression. But of this, it is of faith that it may be according to grace for the promise being sure to all the seed. What promise? Inheriting the world. There is nothing in chapter 4 here about salvation. That's not the promise he's talking about. The promise that God made to Abraham and to his seed, and the way this is, is phrased here, in the Greek, it's, it's even clearer, but I think it comes through in this literal translation pretty well. It's of faith that it may be according to grace for the promise that he would inherit the world being sure to all the seed, not just the seed of Christ. Not that which is of the law only, but also to that which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, a father of many nations, I have set you. The nations coming to the same faith that Abraham had and receiving the promise of inheriting the world. See, the point is we, we often want to reduce the gospel, the good news, to forgiveness of sin. Now, please hear me. 
I am in no way minimizing that promise. If you don't have forgiveness of sin, nothing else matters. But the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 through 17, those promises do not mention forgiveness of sin. But they do mention the nations of the world. This is why I'm very optimistic that the gospel is going to continue to fill the earth the way Jesus said that it would. The earth is ours. It belongs to the people who belong to Abraham, who have the faith of Abraham, starting with the Lord Jesus as the main seed. All right. Just going to throw that out there and let you ponder it. Uh, Jordan says, no more reason to be hung up on land promises. God promised Abram Israel and gave him the world. Exactly. This is what I, I tell people all the time. The dispensational view, which you said you <clears throat> uh, are coming from, is far too small. Way too small. And and I've, <clears throat> excuse me, I've had this argument with dispensationals over the years that they, they take me back to the literal promises and, you know, demand that God fulfill those literal promises literally. <clears throat> and anything else makes God, <coughs> sorry, I don't, something in my throat. Anything else makes God a, a, a liar or fails to be a promise keeper. And I say, wait a minute. The promises as they are fulfilled in Christ are way bigger than the literal promises made to Israel not just the land of Palestine, not just the areas over near Jerusalem, but the whole world. And it, they, they act like that's a, um, an inferior thing. I think if, if I promised my son a, that when he gets older, I'm going to give him a really nice park with, with really cool slides and, and uh, uh, I can't think can't think of all the park toils. You know what I'm talking about. Think of your average neighborhood park. And when he gets of age, I give him Disney World. Is he going to complain? Said, yeah, but you promised me a park? You promised me merry-go-rounds and slides and monkey bars? And I give him Disney World? Of course he's not going to complain at that. And God said this in the prophets. It's too small a thing that I would send the servant simply for the tribes of Jacob. No, he's coming for the whole world. Ken says, world is cosmos. Yes. Well, uh, you say universe. Um, yeah, again, context, right? Cosmos can mean the created order. It can focus on the order of things more so than the, the extent. So you always got to let the context uh, uh, determine it. And here, the context is the nations. That's, that's the almost synonym for, uh, for world throughout this chapter. Uh, childhood Elohim, better covenant with better promises. Absolutely. So, all right, I, uh, I better run. Ponder these things. Read it again and again in context and be amazed at God's promises to us if we trust him. And tomorrow we'll see how uh, Paul wraps up chapter four and get into chapter five, maybe. All right, have a great day. We'll see you. God bless.